All right. Did y'all have a good free time? Yeah? Good. Me too. I took a nap. <laughs> so, um, let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your character, that you are steadfast in your love, that you are faithful, that you show mercy to sinners, and that you um, care about justice. You care about sin and dealing with it. And Lord, as we um, study today through Exodus and see your presence in Israel, I pray that we would see your character and your faithfulness to your covenant promises. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people of hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are continuing with the theme of God's presence. And this time we're going to focus on God's presence with Israel. And so um, this is kind of a big chunk that we're going to summarize uh, because we just don't have time to go through the whole story. But um, starting in Exodus 19 is really going to be the focus of our passage, but we're going to kind of summarize what comes after that as well. So just as a reminder, we ended last session with the first representatives of humanity in a bad spot, but not without hope. Even though they were exiled from the garden, there was still the promise that an enemy would, um, would be defeated and God's mercy would come. Unfortunately, things didn't get better right away, and instead they actually grew worse after the fall. The story continues, though, in big redemptive movements that God makes throughout the biblical story. And Noah is the next one that we're going to see. Genesis 6, 5 through 8 tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You probably know what happens next. The Lord flooded the earth, and with the exception of Noah and his family and all the living creatures that were on the ark, everything else was destroyed. When the flood finally receded, God did something really important. He makes a covenant with Noah. And just like last time we focused on the original audience, the idea of a covenant is... Um, something that would have been familiar in the ancient Near East as well. It wasn't just a biblical idea. Covenant was um, something that countries can make with other countries, people can make with other people. And one definition of a covenant is simply an agreement enacted between two parties in which one or both parties make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain activities stipulated in advance. So basically it's an agreement. It's an agreement between two parties. And even though they out, happened outside of the Bible, God generously makes these covenants throughout the biblical storyline. And there's a weight to that because the God of creation is covenanting with sinful humans. That's a big deal. He chose to bind himself to his people, even though they were unfaithful. And a pattern that we're going to see throughout the story of the Bible is that God is always faithful to his covenant promises even when humans are not. So here's what God has to say to Noah after the flood. Genesis 9, 11 and 12 says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. 
and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God makes an important promise here. He is reminding us through this covenant with Noah that his purposes and plans for his creation are still to bless them. He still wants them to have flourishing like he did in the beginning. Rather than destroying the whole earth, God rescues a remnant to continue this mission of Genesis 1. He still desires to dwell with his people and for the earth to be ruled by his image bearers under his rule. Well, Noah's family grows and it spreads and with it, the condition of humanity spreads. Sin spreads. Generations later, God calls a man named Abraham from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. We can go back to our map. Ur was in southern Sumer, and he called Abraham out of Ur, and then he ended up going north and then kind of back down southwest and eventually settled in Canaan. Um, and God made a covenant with Abraham. And we're going to summarize that covenant as well to get our bearings on our, in our biblical story. Um, we're going to look at Genesis 12 and 15, just two little snippets from those chapters. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Also in Genesis 15, verses 6 through 8, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So God promised Abraham in his covenant essentially three things. Land, offspring, and that the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. But how is this going to happen? If you, if you know anything about Abraham, he didn't have any children. He didn't have the land. He didn't even know which land he was going to when he was called. And the nations had no idea who Abraham was, so how could he bless them? But God says, I will be their God. If it's not clear yet, God is committed to blessing his creation and returning them to the place and presence of blessing that he intended in Eden. The promise to be their God is like the Lord saying, all this is going to happen because I'm committed to you. After Abraham died, those covenant promises kept going. They went to Isaac and then to Jacob, whose children became the nation of Israel. And that nation multiplied. They were in the land of Egypt, and they became oppressed by a wicked Pharaoh. But then Exodus 2.25 tells us that God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew about their suffering. He knew that they had cried out to him, and he heard. And so he raised up another man named Moses. And that's where our story takes place today. In our story of Scripture, our setting is going to be the covenant between Moses, uh, between the Lord and Israel, mediated through Moses. 
And so if we're looking at the story of Scripture, we've already progressed from creation, there was the fall, and then there's these movements of redemption that are pointing <laughs> us forward. And so Moses is, um, Moses is where we're um, landing right now, the covenant with Moses. So God made a, a way of escape for his oppressed people as they left Egypt. They went through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And then they arrived at a place that we probably, probably recognize called Mount Sinai. It's probably familiar to us. They were freed from slavery, but the problem of death and exile, um, it still followed them. And just to show you again on our map, Egypt right here is where they were in the land of Goshen. And then they went down. This, little, this is supposed to be Mount Sinai. Um, it was actually off the map. And um, eventually they went back to Canaan. But for our story today, where we're going to be at, we're just going to stay and imagine with um, the Israelites that we're on Mount Sinai. Um, God's mission to be reconciled to creation is most advanced here since Eden. He is covenanting with a whole nation, with an entire community of people. And this covenant is announced in Exodus 19. I'm going to read an intro to that, and then later we'll read a larger chunk. Exodus 19, 4 through 6 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And the people enthusiastically agreed. They said, yes, Lord, we will do everything that you said. But what were they agreeing to? Some scholars have noticed the similarities in this covenant language to a similar treaty in that time period called a suzerain-vassal treaty. And a suzerain would be a king of, say, like a ruling, more powerful country, and a vassal would be like the lesser of the two countries. And they would sometimes enter into an agreement for mutual benefit. The suzerain would offer military, sometimes economic protection for the vassal country, and the vassal country would pledge their loyalty to the suzerain country or king and they would work that way. There was a power difference, but it was um, entered into because really oftentimes the vassal would have no choice. But if they broke their agreement, then that protection of the suzerain would be forfeited and they would be at odds with one, another, with one another. But the Lord, the one to whom the whole earth belongs, is the suzerain king initiating a covenant here with the Hebrew people. So what he's offering is that the people of God would be to him a treasured, treasured possession. They would belong to him. He would make them into a kingdom. And when you hear the word kingdom, I, I hope that Genesis 1 and even the covenant with Abraham is kind, of, is kind of going on in the background of your mind. Because this kingdom language, it also reminds us of our original calling to be royal representatives under God's authority and rule. And we know that God is fulfilling the mission that Abraham, that he promised through Abraham, that all the nations of the world will be blessed. So this kingdom language is it's not new to this covenant, but God is continue, continuing the work that he started. He also offers them a priesthood, a task that again affirms their role as mediators or go-betweens between God and the rest of creation. 
And then last, he said that they are to be a holy nation. Holy means to be set apart. In this case, they would be set apart to be a light to the world. They would be the representatives of Yahweh. It's a beautiful offer. The Lord of the earth is pursuing his exiled people. And there was nothing special about Israel. They too were descendants of Adam. They too had a sinful nature. They too had defined good and evil on their own. And they were, there was nothing powerful about them. They were not an impressive pe- people. They were just a small group of recently freed slaves that didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And yet, this is not a story primarily about Israel. It's about the God of Israel. And the God of Israel is the God of creation. And he's the one who covenanted with Noah and covenanted with Abraham. And these covenants that he had made were not failed attempts. They were, they were like arrows pointing forward. God made a covenant with Israel because he had already made a covenant with Abraham. And he was still determined to be faithful. After Exodus 19, we probably are familiar with what comes next. That was the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it's important to note that the commandments themselves, they were not what brought that relationship to be. God had already committed to his people. Those commandments were um, ways that the vassal could be loyal to their suzerain. In other words, how they could be a faithful covenant partner with God. But the relationship had already been initiated. God had already chosen them to be his people. So I told you last time that we're going to look at two key questions for the rest of our sessions. The first one is, how will God dwell again with his people? And the second one is, how will the problem of human rebellion be resolved? So we're going to pick those up again here in our text. Number one, how will God dwell again with his people? Well, God does something extraordinary. In chapter 19, verse 9, he says, I am coming to you. Could someone please read in Exodus 19, verses starting in verse 9, and read all the way to verse 20. It's going to be our primary text. Thank you. When I was in college, I worked for um, a fast food restaurant called Sonic. Do y'all have Sonic up here? No? Yeah? Okay. Okay. I didn't know if that was like a nationwide thing. Um, Anyway, we uh, we had a shift manager, and so usually there was a shift manager each time I worked, but then sometimes I'd work with the store manager, and then every now and then, the regional manager would come by. So if, if we knew that he was coming, everybody would get ready. Like, we would make sure all the stations were clean, like our uniforms looked right, and we were, like, upselling the customers, you know, everything. Um, and we would just try to be on our, you know, our best behavior because the regional manager was coming. It was a big deal. But more important than a regional store manager, the suzerain of their covenant, God himself, said that he was coming to them. So what, is the peop- what do the people of Israel do? They get ready. They have to consecrate themselves. They have to prepare because the Lord is coming. And he is holy. And he is not like them in, in essence. And he is above them in purity. He is their maker and the one that they have rebelled against. And yet he still says, I'm coming to you. When God came to visit Israel, not everyone had direct access. So the people in the camp, is that me? Okay, I'll just keep going and we'll see. Um, okay, 
the people in the camp had to, had to consecrate themselves and get ready for the Lord coming. So even though they couldn't have access to go on top of the mountain, even just being in at the base of the mountain in the camp meant they had to consecrate themselves. They had to prepare because it was a big deal that God's presence was coming to Mount Sinai. The only people who could even partially ascend were going to be Moses, um, Aaron and his, son, and his sons, and then some of the elders of Israel. They could go partially up the mountain, but Moses was the only one who would have direct access. So does this answer our question? Remember, our first question is, um, how will God dwell again with his people? So does he dwell again with his people on Sinai? You don't have to answer it's gonna be, it can be rhetorical because it's a kind of a yes and a no. Um, he does dwell there, and his presence is really there, but it's not like Eden. Because if you think back to Eden, um, the original relationship was like God walking with them in a garden and free access, and there was no fear. But then at Sinai, what was his presence like? It was like a fire and thunder. It was scary. And they couldn't go near. So he was there. It was still a good thing. King David even testifies about that in Psalm 16, verse 11. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. All David knew of his presence was the tabernacle. But it was still a good thing. Even in the limited way God was there, it was good. The problem, though, was that our sin and God's holiness doesn't mix. And neither, neither did Israel's. So until question two is resolved, question one cannot be fully resolved. But again, he's faithful to finish what he starts. So let's look at the second question. How will the problem of human rebellion be resolved? Not long after the presence comes to Mount Sinai, do we see how it's going to play out? So Exodus 24 tells us about this account where Aaron and Moses and Aaron's sons go up and like, the presence was there. Like nobody died when it came, like the consecration effort worked and they were able to celebrate. They ate a feast on the mountain and they celebrated that his presence had come to dwell amongst his people. A few verses later, God calls Moses even farther up the mountain. He says in Exodus 24 verses 15 through 18, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So on the seventh day, the God, uh, that was the day that God rested um, in creation. That was the same day that he invited Moses to join him on the seventh day. So God is inviting Moses into a Sabbath rest with him. To the people outside of that proximity, the image is like a devouring fire, kind of like the cherubim with the flaming sword in Eden. What they're looking at is Moses entering into a death cloud, and yet he lives. He communes with God. In the following chapters of Exodus, God gives Moses instructions for what it will look like if he actually takes up residence permanently with them. He provides instructions for a tabernacle and the priests who would work in it. 
And I want you to listen to how many similarities there are to Eden in this description of the tabernacle. There was an ark. It was made from wood, and it had gold and cherubim seated on top. There was a lampstand called the menorah, and it had a base with six branches with flower-like cups. Think tree of life. There was a tent, and it was made of animal skins. There was an inner curtain in front of the Ark of the Presence, and that curtain was decorated with cherubim and vibrant colored yarn, like what you might see in a beautiful garden. There were the priestly garments, and these garments were covered with the gems like those found in Eden, and it was embroidered with um, fruit, pomegranates actually. So in giving the instructions for the tabernacle, God is communicating to the people that he is working to restore things like they were. It's like the creation story all over again, with a new opportunity for God's people to obey him and to dwell with him. Unfortunately, this communion was interrupted. While Moses was up on the mountain receiving these awesome instructions, the people were below, meanwhile growing impatient. And just as Adam in the garden and Noah after the flood and Abraham with Hagar, the people that God chooses to covenant with they blow it again, and they make a golden calf this time. And before the commandment tablets are even finished, they break the first one. So our second question is coming into focus. How will the problem of human rebellion be resolved? God's going to provide a mediator. A mediator is someone who's appointed to represent the people to God and God to the people. Moses invited those who were loyal to the Lord after, after this whole incident happened to destroy those who made the golden calf, who were no longer loyal to him. Sin had to be dealt with. Moses pleads to God then, on behalf of the ones remaining, that he would forgive them. Exodus 32, 32 says, But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. That's what Moses said. One scholar says, Moses offers himself in Israel's stead. He is in effect calling upon God to forgive Israel by obliterating him instead. This is the kind of mediator that Israel needed. And this is the kind of mediator that we need also. One who will offer himself up for our sake. So how does God respond when Moses does this to Moses' mediation? If someone else would, would read with me um, Exodus 33, verses 13 and 14, and then maybe someone else, Exodus 34, 1 through 9. So the first one was Exodus 33, 13 through 14. Who would like to read that? Okay. Now therefore, as I have found favor. Um, so Moses reminds God that this is your people. He brings that to him, and he says, God, this is the people that you have covenanted with. And so God keeps his promises, despite their proneness to wander. He assures them. He says, my presence will go with you. After seeing them at their worst, God amazingly still commits to enter into a covenant relationship with them. I have two young kids right now. I have four kids, but two of them are still pretty young. And sometimes they can struggle with their emotions. And if they are drawing a picture that they don't like or making a craft and they get mad because it's not turning out the way they want, sometimes they'll crumble it up. And one time my husband 
bless his heart, he tried to help and like get an iron and iron it back out, but he used the steam function. And so it like bled all the colors together. So it never quite looked like it was supposed to after that. But God doesn't do that here. The first uh, tablets that were broken, instead of just giving them some inferior covenant, he himself writes on a second pair of tablets. I'm not sure if that's me. Okay, I'm going to put this here just in case. But he writes, on the, he writes the exact same words on a new pair of tablets. And he discloses to Moses also the kind of God that he is. And in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 34, um, we see a passage that's going to be repeated throughout the rest of Scripture over and over. And it tells us exactly who this God is. I'm going to read it for us one more time. Chapter 34, 6 and 7 says, He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This verse is the reason that we can be certain God will dwell again with his people and he will also deal with human rebellion. His own character here sets up the tension that we're going to feel throughout the rest of the Bible. God is ready to forgive, but he also can't leave sin unpunished. How? The next book, Leviticus, is going to give us a little bit of a clue because it sets up something called the sacrificial system. But even that was a temporary measure. We're going to see a permanent solution in our next session this evening when we talk about God's presence in Jesus. But for now, I'm going to end with the same um, snippet, same phrase from the book, The Story of God with Us. God's presence was with Israel so that he could dwell with us and we with him, always and forever, world without end.